start in the book of John. And this is written by a guy who uh, would tell you that he was Jesus' best friend. He would just flat out and say, I'm Jesus' best friend. That's me. No one else is. Uh, he's a really neat guy that was radically changed because of what Jesus did in his life. Now, usually I would do a whole sermon on uh, kind of the intro of just about the author, but in this case, I decided I wasn't going to do that because as we go along in the book of John, we're really just going to, he kind of introduces himself all the way through the book because he, keep, he keeps throwing in little things about himself. So we'll just kind of be surprised when we get there when he reveals these different things. Sometimes they're very softly kind of done, you know, subtle. Um, other times, he's like in your face. I was special to Jesus, okay? And I want you to understand that. So, I mean, he kind of goes all over the place on that. But it is the fourth gospel of the New Testament. Now, testament means covenant, okay? Jesus brought a new covenant to us. The old covenant was from Mount Sinai. And we learned that, and we talked about that as we went through some of the Old Testament books and the book of, you know, Exodus, when God, you know, took Moses up and said, this is my covenant with you. And it goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, but this new covenant is when Jesus came, and he lived, and he died on the cross, and he was resurrected. He defeated death, so Beverly could defeat death, so you could defeat death, so I could defeat death through Jesus Christ. And he ascended to the Father. He gave us the Holy Spirit and said, because of me and the Holy Spirit, you can do this. You can survive this life. You can be a reflection of me in this world. You can bring others to me because of what I've done and what the Holy Spirit does that lives within you. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, and I will take you into eternity with me. This is, all, this is the covenant that we all have. This is the covenant that John started to share with others. And this man, he, he walked with Jesus. He's out fishing one day with his brother James, and, and, and they had a father named Zebedee. And it's actually kind of a, a play on words, because Zebedee means thunder. Okay, and uh, everybody in Capernaum and Bethsaida knew who these two boys were. They were the sons of thunder. So their dad was loud, and therefore what? They were loud. You ever known that family? And of course, none of us are like that, right? But you know that family that's just at all the time loud? Um, uh, praise the Lord, my family's not completely like that. I tamp that down in them a little bit. Uh, you know, every so often I'm like, Grayson, okay, you, you can't scream in the house like that, okay? Have fun, but stop screaming. But these, I mean, the teachers called these boys the sons of thunder, I'm sure, in school. Written on the report card would have been too much thunder, okay? Uh, and those teachers that are out here, you know exactly what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so John is a fun one to watch. And we, you know, we see these videos uh, about the time of Jesus and, and Jesus on the lakeside and all the fishermen, they all look like old, uh, I say old men, they probably, you know, they all look like my age or older with long beards, okay, starting a little gray and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and we, but uh, when, you, when you get into it, you start to realize many of these guys were younger. John would have been possibly a teenager when he began to follow Jesus. 
Maybe, maybe in his 20s, but really he was a young guy. And it's ironic because when we study a book like, um, you, know, or, you know, study a book like Joshua and God ta- calls Joshua an old man. Okay, and that's God talking to Joshua, you know, and, or Daniel, where, where Daniel's just 85 years old and he's on fire for God. But this book with this guy, you got to think of John as a really young man. Now, he lives many years and all the way to the book of Revelation and writes Revelation when he's in his, you know, golden years when he's older after they tried to kill him. And we'll get to that. But um, he was really young. John couldn't have been much older. Because he was still writing in 90 A.D., the book of Revelations. So do the math. Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. Somewhere around 29 A.D., and and some of you might go, well, I thought it was 33 A.D. Well, the calendar kind of got goofed up on all the dates. They actually believe Jesus was born somewhere around 4 B.C. and not 0 like we would initially think. I I know it's kind of like common core math. I'm just saying So John writes this book somewhere around 90, 91 A.D., 60 years later. And this is a cool thing about John. His gospel is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Their gospels kind of are a lot like the same, and and they kind of follow the same pattern. Nothing wrong with that. They're actually called the synoptic gospels because they do that. They're almost the same. But John's gospel is completely different. <clears throat> it's like he studied separately or something like that. Or, or, you know, he lived life differently than those other guys. Or he had a different view. Why? Because we're all different, right? You go into a court of law and they have five people testify about the same event. And you get five different versions of that event, okay? That's just the way it is. We all have a different view. Now, some have taken this to mean that it, you know, it's so different that there must be something wrong with one or the other. And that is not true. He went from being the son of thunder as a young man to being a disciple of love as he got older. And that's the power of Jesus. That's the power of Jesus. He changes us. And this gives some of us a little bit of hope, you know, especially to those who you know, are young or think they're still young, you know, that the Lord can transform us more into his image as we mature, as we find ourselves changing. John's life is a great example of this. The book of John is one of the easiest books to read, and you're going to enjoy this. Uh, You know, you don't get into (coughs) Daniel where you're sitting there going, what did he just say? Let me read that another 20 times, and I'm still not going to understand it, okay? That is not the book of John. You're going to, you know, just enjoy it and be there. It's easy to understand. If you read this book in the book of Romans, you would have a great understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So, how is this guy who has no formal education beyond the age of 13 at his uh, bar mitzvah, now, I mean, he still would have went to synagogue at Capernaum, and, and here's a picture of that uh, synagogue, what it looks like today, the, the ruins of it that are, that are still there. In fact, um, the, the, if you see the 
on the second picture here, the darker um, stuff underneath is literally the foundation of the synagogue that was there during the time of Christ. Christ would have gone to that synagogue. He would have taught at that synagogue, okay? And, and the, the later um, color, the lighter color there is from the fourth century as the synagogue was, you know, torn down and rebuilt and all those kind of things. Uh, but that's kind of really cool. But, I mean, this guy, uh, you can imagine him, the son of thunder, running around the synagogue as a little kid, right? Throwing airplanes like my kids, right? You know, uh, just having a, you know, having a good time. So how does this kid full of vigor meet Jesus as a young man? Well, he was a fisherman. And Peter was one of his partners. He had a great family business going on, you know, a multi-boat ministry, if you want to call it that. As a young man, he would have been trained by his dad to take over this job one day. Jesus comes along, you know, one day and takes over his life and leaves Zebedee with the boats. And here he goes off following Jesus. Later on, he writes one of the deepest yet most simple books of the Bible. The depth of this book is so amazing but because John writes so differently. I mean, Luke opens up his, his gospel. I mean, you know Dr. Luke, you know, very squared away, you know. Uh, but a Gentile hangs out with the disciples later in life and writes all this stuff down, interviews a lot of people. He goes and, you know, Paul and Mary, well, what was your view? What, you know, what did you? And he dictates it all down. He puts it all together. And, and John's like, you know, um, uh, you know, I got all these witnesses. And then Luke comes along and Luke says, you know, my gospel is completely accurate. I have all these extra witnesses and, and I'm not being haughty about it. I, it's just a fact, okay? I mean, that's kind of, these guys had a little bit of fun competition going along. But John comes along and says, I was the eyewitness. I was there. I got to see it. I don't need to go interview other people because I saw it. He comes and says, I was the eyewitness. Comes along in 1 John and also includes the other disciples, which is very big of him. Finally, he kind of, 1 John, oh yeah, these other disciples were along too, you know, for the ride, you know. And he says, we beheld his glory. We touched him. We punched him on the arm, you know. We high-fived him. We did all these, you know. We saw him. We felt him. We felt the glory of the only begotten God. And even though we walked with Jesus, he also had entered into revelations, uh, you know, into the revelation of who Jesus is and always was. He understood this beyond the physical form of Jesus. Now, when we say the word revelation, we automatically think of, of the book, right? You all know that John wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos after he was exiled from the Romans for being a Christian and not worshiping Caesar. Now, we have a lot of politicians that want us to worship them, right? But imagine Caesar. I mean, it was decreed that you had to worship Caesar, they tried boiling this out of him in a vat of oil. They literally threw him into a boiling oil, which is pretty much a rough way to go. They got the oil all hot like they usually did, and, and they threw John into it, and guess what? John didn't die. They finally pull him out, and he's like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be your fondue today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to put a little levity into it because it's kind of gross, right? But then they continue to persecute him. 
As Americans, we've talked about this the last few weeks. You know, we're like, oh, I am being so persecuted. No, no, really, you're not, okay? You don't overestimate your persecution. Many, many Christians lost their life this last year, uh, literally being persecuted for their belief in Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, John was one of those that was persecuted for his faith, but he didn't die. So they put him on an island with, with all these criminals, kind of like Mandela was in South Africa, or, or kind of like Australia was for a long time. You know, Britain just basically shipped anybody that they didn't like to Australia, and then they found the New World, America, if we want to call it the New World and all that, and, and then they started shipping all the people they didn't want here, which created this wonderful, uh, you know, America that we live in. And it is a wonderful place to live in, because we're not persecuted like they are around the rest of the world. Now, John starts here with a revelation in the book of John, but not about the future. It's about the past. Look at what the scriptures say here at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. This is John talking about his buddy Jesus. I mean, this is, you know, the first few weeks of, of hanging out, they, they, you know, thought it was, you know, he was either a really great rabbi or he was a great prophet. And any religion um, that defines Jesus that way has really not understood who he truly is. Because Jesus was before time. Jesus invented the concept of time. I was able to replace the clock because our clock went crazy in the back. Finally got a clock I could see. You know, we went from a clock that was this big to a clock that's like this big, okay? I can see it in the back now, and you're, some of you are going, praise the Lord. You know. But Jesus, he invented the concept of time. In the beginning was the Word. The word beginning means origin. It sounds like the book of Genesis, doesn't it? doesn't sound like any of the Gospels. It sounds like Genesis. You know, how does Genesis start? In the beginning. This is the Gospel that takes us back to the beginning of time. That, that you know, then John will, will walk us through this life that Jesus had. And then he will take us into the mind of Christ in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. Into the prayer life of Christ in chapter 17. And then into the future and the resurrection. It is a powerful book. And it will take us a little bit to get, you know, get, to get through it. I'm thinking somewhere around 40 or so weeks. Give or take a few. But he goes on. It's, a, it's an incredible journey that, if you let it, can change your life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. I don't know of a greater sentence right there to understand the world today. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
Now, on one hand, it's very easy to listen to John. Compared to that, to Joshua with all the names of the kings and all that kind of stuff, you know, is, is not very, very uh, easy to listen to. But this is easy to listen to, but it's also deep. And you can see how a child or a genius can track with this book. In the beginning was the word. Now watch this. He's going to give us uh, theme words here. And then he'll switch really quick to new, new theme words. And, and, you know, how did he learn how to write this way? I don't know. He was a fisherman. I know some fishermen, okay? Quite a few. I would say from Oklahoma, but there might be somebody from Oklahoma watching for a family member or something, you know? But he was a fisherman. Have you see, ever seen those, those guys on the TV show, Deadliest Catch? Would you say they're scholars? Okay, the four of you that watch that show, you understand what I'm saying. You know, those guys are not scholars, you know. How could he write like this? Look for the key word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, we all understand the key word there is word, and the other key word there is God. He was, you know, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, in case you forgot about the beginning from the last sentence. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So now we see another key word, made, and you're going to see this throughout the book, the way he writes. Verse 4, in him was life. And the life was with the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There's a great flow to this book. It's, it's logical in the way it patterns itself out. So let's go back and look at some of these words. In the beginning was the word. Now, the beginning was the origin of all things. Not to be confused with after, you know, uh, after time began... Jesus was born, okay? Um, and that's the physical manifestation of Christ on this earth. Let's not confuse that. In the beginning, we're talking Genesis. We're talking about before Genesis. In the beginning, uh, the, you know, Jehovah's Witness will, will teach you that Jesus was not there until he was actually physically born on this earth. And this is false teaching. When you said word or word of God to a first century Jew... They thought of the spoken word of God. In other words, logos, like Psalms. By the, the word of the Lord, the earth was spoken. Or Isaiah 55.10, the word of the Lord goes out and it will not return void. Or the prophets, and the word of the Lord came to Obadiah. And the word of the Lord came to Amos. So when you, you, you came to the, uh, to the Logos or you came to the Word, to a Jewish mind, they're thinking of the spoken Word of God. Now this is great and everything, but John, the last two decades of his life, you know, he hung around all these Gentiles. He didn't stop becoming, you know, he didn't stop being Jewish, but Jesus came along as a Jew and a completed Jew but most of them didn't track with that. Did you know that over a thousand years, uh, Christians were called to persecute the Jews? For over a thousand years. If you were a Christian, it was your job, if you found a Jewish person, to persecute them. Because the Jews were, Je you know, the killers of Jesus. 
This was not God's intention. Jesus came to draw all men to himself, and he became a Jew first. So, you know, but then he also tells us that he came into his own, and they rejected him. And those who do not receive him, uh, or, or those that did receive him, he gave the right to become the son of God. The Jews would say to a Christian, you have no right to say you were a son of God. Because I am a son of Abraham, they would say, not you. But Jesus and John will say, you call yourself a, a son of Abraham. Whoop-de-doo. Okay? That's how they would say. They would say, that doesn't mean anything. Big deal. And they would want to kill you for saying that. And they eventually did. They eventually did for Jesus. We think of Jesus and we want him to be all sweet and everything, right? Oh, the sweet Jesus. The fun Jesus, the laughing Jesus, the comforting Jesus. But he was also the truth-telling Jesus. He also got in their face uh, in, in ways and says, you call yourself sons of Abraham? Who cares? And this is an amazing thing. Jesus rarely acts Christian-like how we think. Now, that doesn't give us room, you know, just to go out and be like Christ and be rude to everybody, okay? Uh, I'm not saying that, okay? But there's times when truth has to stand up, and we have to say the truth, and we do it with the most loving way, but the truth is what? The truth, right? You still have to say it. This is the amazing thing about Jesus. John is going to come with softness in the beginning, at the very beginning of his book. In the beginning was the Word. And the word comes from the, uh, you know, comes from the Greek. It's not a Jewish word at all. Two-thirds of John's life, the Christians were spread all over the world. They didn't stay in Israel. They were dispersed. John was in the school of Ephesus with Paul that attracted great philosophers from around the world because Christians, completed Jews, were beginning to talk philosophy more than religion. And they would come up against that. And to get away with, you know, from that bad religion that was coming and, and spreading in the world. You know, and not all religion is bad, but a lot of it can be negative, right? I mean, the saying goes, religion is all about roles, and relationship is about Jesus. We need a relationship. Now, there may be some rules that come along with it, but we follow those rules because we love God and we want to become more like him. Not because God's back there going, oh, Alan, oh, there's another mark against you. Yeah, he's not doing that. He's saying, Alan, come back here. Don't do that again. Come back here. Now ask for forgiveness and I'll forgive you. But it's about a relationship. So you have these Jesus freaks out there talking about the, you know, talking to intelligent men, and they were they were giving their lives over to Jesus. And these intelligent guys would say to John, You keep talking to you know about Jesus, and it sounds like the word logos to us. So John goes, Hey, that's a great word. And he starts using it and he starts writing about it. And what is John is doing is he's taking a word from the culture and using it to describe Jesus. Now, what was Logos? Well, Logos was calculation, reason, source, speech, instruction, mandate, or even the word order. In Greek philosophy in the first century, Logos was a thing that you approached logically. 
That's a lot like mathematics today. You know, philosophically, there was a, a thing that ties the whole universe together, and they just didn't know what it was. But they decided that there was a thing, a creative force, you know, which, which sustained the universe. And Logos to them was huge. It was an underlying thing that made us relate, not only to each other, but to creation also, the sky and the, you know, the stars and everything. We were up at, at Bass Lake in and, and Yosemite this past week, and we walked out of one of the condos, and because of the way that it, you know, it, was so, it was nice and chilly and cold up there, and, and the way that the earth had warmed and, and it was cooling down at night, you know, the, the, the waves and how they were going up in the sky, I looked up and I went, that's where they got the song Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Because the stars were all kind of like twinkling, you know what I'm saying? And, and that, I mean, what's funny is I don't think I've ever seen that before, like that. I mean, it was just so pronounced, and so I immediately started singing the song. You know, um, I won't do that to you, but we can relate to that. Now, they would laugh at us today. Why? Because our world has come up with, with creation, the big thing, without the logos, without the thing that ties it all together. They would say the universe is, was being held together by thought. Uh, now, I, I, I don't agree with that, but here is where John was heading with it. John was saying, you want to know logos. You have this philosophy about everything being tied together. Let me show you who logos is. It's my buddy who took me fishing when he didn't know how to fish. But we caught more than we'd ever caught He's also the guy who walked across the top of the water. He calmed the seas by his voice. He healed people. Even his enemies were amazed when, the, you know, when, he, when he taught and when he talked. And they were amazed by his actions. That is who I'm talking about. And this former fisherman stood toe-to-toe with the best philosophers of his day. Now, the closest thing I think that we, you know, I believe that that the 20th century uh, got to this was Albert Einstein and his thoughts on physics and and mathematics. Einstein, uh, uh, quote, wasted the latter years of his life by working on something he, he couldn't get anyone else to agree upon, that it even existed. It's called the unified field theory. Anybody unified field? No one. Okay. Well, let me explain it to you. No, no, not going to happen. But, you know, and the conclusions that he came up with didn't work. They didn't fly. But I'm not concerned about the conclusions. What I like are his questions. His questions were the same questions that the Greeks were asking, but they were asking from a mathematics perspective, a logos perspective. He was saying there's an equation out there that ties everything together, and this equation has power beyond something we could imagine. But it would unlock things so we could understand them, the thing that ties everything together. And that's the problem. He was looking for a thing. A thing. He couldn't decide whether the biggest things or the smallest things affected the universe more. 
He died with that question unanswered, but I bet he knows the question, I mean, the answer now. Physicists, 50 years later, are still asking the question, and now they just call it string theory. Now, let me tell you a little bit about string theory. Okay, well, I know. I don't understand it either, okay? You know what I'm saying? But what they're trying to do is find logos. Man is still looking for what created the universe, that sustains the universe, that continues the universe. And we're very impressed with these guys that are so smart. But I'm more impressed with the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul. Why? Because as a first century Jew, with the little education they had, came up with the answer for the 21st century physicist, couldn't. Listen to Paul in Corinthians 1.15, or Colossians 1.15. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Jesus is the unifying force of this universe. That's what it is. And if you miss it, you will try to use your mind to discover it in other things. Your mind has to work with your heart, and, and, and it's not you know, understandable without faith. Faith has to be there. Reason will only take you so far. Logic will only take you so far in finding the truth. It takes more faith to walk through the Smithsonian exhibits on nature and believe in the leaps and bounds that they take between certain creatures and say man started from a little fish that got out of the water and started hopping around. There's, I mean, that, that takes faith in explaining creation. It takes more faith to believe in that than it does to believe in Logos, the creator. So John calls him Logos. And if you're, if you're a list type of person, start making a list of everything John calls Jesus. It will be a long list by the, by the end of this book. It'll be huge. Circle them, add them to the margins of your Bible, or heaven forbid, use those blank pages in the back of the Bible for notes. I mean, I, you know, can we write in our Bible, people, you know? So find the, you know, so, I mean, so the first word that he calls Jesus is the word logos. God spoke and time began. God spoke and there was a man. Then he, Nuame, he breathed that life into man. He gave him breath. God spoke and he came. And he injected himself into our world for 33 years and he went to the cross and on that cross he spoke and he said the last sentence it is finished and those words opened up a door for us to enter into eternity where someday God will speak and time will end again the time that we <laughs> understand and he we will begin the endless time with God 
This is so unbelievably deep. It's deeper than any Eastern meditation thought. It's hard to grasp. But you know what this tells me? The junk and the crud that I go through and that you go through, the relationships uh, that we have with other people and how they affect us, you know, mentally and physically and everything else, the, 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 the physical problems that we have, the health issues that we may have, the financial issues, and this and that issue, and you can keep going on and on. The constant battle with sin. Someday that will end. And I'll get to enter into a time of rest and peace that passes all my understanding. And because of Logos, I've entered into the beginning of that here on earth. We forget about that. Because of Logos, I'm sure of this, that I will not die not understanding it, but I will die not understanding how big it is. We get little glimpses of Jesus while we're here. If we pay attention, but we have no clue about how big it is. The more I get to know Jesus, the bigger he gets. I mean, I grew up with churchy Jesus. How about you? Little baby Jesus. And then I grew up with guilt Jesus. You know guilt Jesus? Yeah. And praise the Lord, I had a great youth pastor. He was not a perfect guy, but through his imperfections, he told me when I graduated, he said, Alan, the Jesus you learned about at church is only a small portion of the Jesus who loves you. He is much bigger than anything you can imagine. Go out there and find him. Don't go find a church. Go find Jesus. And when I think of that man... All the fun that we had, you never wanted to go to a grocery store with that man and walk behind him. He would just pick stuff off the shelf and throw it up in the air, expect you to catch it and put it back in. We had all, I mean, we, all the jokes that we pulled on each other and all the trips and all the Bible studies and all the prayer sessions and all the, the worship times that I had, I thank God for him, but mostly I thank God that he told me about the relationship with Jesus, that it was not just a church Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I know, we're moving along fast here, aren't we? Just so you know, I already you know, planned out how long it'll take us. I was kind of joking earlier. I think it's going to take us 42 weeks to get through, John. According to my plans, Jesus may change that, I don't know. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You get Logos down. That's what you need to get down. Now, did you catch another thing? Jesus is God. And we're like, yeah, yeah, right, right. We know He is, of course. I mean, this is church, right? It's where we talk about Jesus. He is God. Don't take it for granted. Look at the society you live in. I mean, the society says, oh, I respect Jesus. He was a great man. Right up there with Gandhi in my book. But when you start saying that Jesus is God, oh, that changes things. 
Because even churches have stopped saying that Jesus is God because they take it for granted. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is part of the Trinity, and John is going to give us more, uh, more teaching, more Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Here's another title, Creator. Word, God, Creator. Jesus himself is the Creator. In him was life. It's another title, life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Four verses, he used it four times, four titles, four different titles and four verses. Now, we won't take time right now to, to uh, you know, with this word because he uses it 50 times throughout this gospel and we'll, we'll hit it. It's an important word that I don't think we have time for today according to the bigger clock. But Jesus will call himself in chapter 14, I think it is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is Zoe in Greek, and the life was the light of men. And that's your fifth title, light. Jesus is light. Now, why would we need that? <laughs> because we live in a dark world, don't we? And in a dark world, you have pockets of light, right? And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Here's a picture of New York. Looks completely different at night than it does during the day, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't have time today, so I will say a couple of things, but this is where we're going to start off next week. But the darkness did not comprehend it. If you have an amplified Bible, then this sentence is a great way to, to look it up. The darkness cannot understand it. It's katalabanum uh, in Greek. What it really means is darkness cannot gain control over it, and it can't extinguish it. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not extinguish it. Nothing is going to extinguish Jesus within me. And if you're going to dig your heels in, in this life, it's going to run you over like a train. And you're going to go, man, when, do, when is this attack over? And guess what? When the attack is over, you're still going to be full of light because that light refuses to be extinguished. We are like New York. This was the middle of the night, the first night my wife and I in 2008, I think it was, took a trip to, to New York. At 2 a.m., which was, what, midnight our time, by the time we traveled all day and got there and got to the hotel, we decided we needed to go out and do a quintessential thing of all New, New Yorkers do. Go get a hot dog. And this is what we walked outside to. You're talking about bright. Now, this, you know, this screen doesn't give it justice. I mean, it was like daytime out there. That light will one day be extinguished. But the light that's in me, no. It will never be extinguished. The darkness tries to take over. And if you're in despair, but when you get out of depression, you start to realize that, that you're like Times Square, but even greater, you're full of light. And even though your body may not feel like it, it may even feel like it's extinguished, 
that light is not. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the ways the world has tried to extinguish Christianity in the last 2,000 years. But the same light that lights the heavens is in you and I. And the darkness, it can't comprehend it. It doesn't get it. It doesn't understand how the world can roll over you like it does, and then you stand up, and you're still okay. It doesn't get that. Because the world would wallow. The world would totally complain. The world would sit in the muck and the mire. But we come out of it, and we show Jesus, and the world goes, what? And that's your opportunity to be Jesus in their life. I'm going to leave it right there. So why don't we pray as the worship team comes up and finishes us out the last song. Lord, I pray that we can be a light, a beacon to those in this dark world, that we could comprehend you on a, on a greater understanding, a greater level. Not that there's some secret level out there, Lord, but, but that we could to grasp who you are in this world and in our lives. We ask for that as we go through the book of John. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And when he does, may your light shine even greater. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.